Hello and welcome everyone to Westside Christian Church. Today, John Wade is bringing the teaching to you. So grab a Bible and join us as we study God's Word together. kind of inward focus. In fact, we just finished up our series called Deny Your Selfie, which was all about kind of our self-centered, me-centric culture. And in that type of culture, people tend to believe that they are owed good things. We think we're entitled to good things and that they should just naturally come our way. And when they do, when good things come, We're not very thankful for them often. We kind of tend to focus on the bad things when they happen and get depressed about all those things and don't remember the thousands of good things that we take for granted. We're so entitled and ungrateful that we become depressed and angry and hopeless when one thing goes wrong. I'm guilty of this myself in a massive way. I like for things to be perfect and go according to plan. And sometimes I forget to celebrate all the things that go so very right that could have gone wrong. Rather than being grateful for a lifetime of all kinds of wonderful things, including our health, we get depressed over one illness. We lack gratitude almost entirely in our culture. So much so that we're surprised when children say thank you or recognize the work that we do on their behalf at all. Aren't we that way? With kids nowadays, when they say thank you, we're like, that is such a nice kid. Like, I love that. There's hope for humanity. Such a simple phrase, thank you. We're happy with just the words from our young people. Even if they are just empty words that don't contain any real gratitude or grateful sentiment whatsoever. And it got me to thinking. Is God happy with just our words? Is God happy with just the words, thank you, but not an attitude, not a lifestyle of thankfulness? Is God fooled by our hollow and empty words? Is he pleased with our insincere lip service? The obvious answer I would hope that we would all recognize is no, God is not pleased with our voraciously vacuous verbiage. Yes, I worked on that one. That didn't come naturally. We're told outright in Matthew chapter 12, verse 36, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Every careless word. Careless. Think about our empty words. Think about the words we don't really mean. If our careless words we are held accountable for, think about all the others. So how then do we give thanks appropriately, correctly, rightly? How do we do what we're supposed to do in giving thanks and not just pay lip service? What does real thankfulness, sincere thankfulness look like? If it's not simply words spewed forth from our mouth by our tongue, 
what does real thankfulness look like? And to see what it looks like, I think that it would be appropriate for us to turn to a man in Scripture who had much to be thankful for. His name was Zechariah. He was the father of John the Baptist. Fitting story for leading into Christmas time, I think. If you have a Bible, open up to Luke chapter 1. We'll start in verse 5. And this is the story of the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist. And it is a miraculous one. Luke 1, 5 through 25 says this. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commands, commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. And while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, perhaps the greatest understatement in this whole story. And fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall this be? How shall I know this rather? Um, for I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years and the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent uh, to speak to you, to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Zechariah was a man of God. A true believer. He wasn't some political charlatan using the church to further his own agenda, taking advantage of the people of God. He was a priest who genuinely cared about his duties and responsibilities. He was a preacher who loved his people. And when it was time to draw the lots for service in the temple, he probably hoped he would get drawn but didn't hold his breath. 
See, Zechariah was one of many priests. There were lots of priests during this time period who all had to wait their turn for service at the temple. There were many priestly duties, but many more priests than there were priestly duties. And so Zechariah had to wait and had to draw lots to work in the temple. And he waited for his name to be drawn. And his whole life he went without it being drawn. And then comes today. He gets drawn for not just one of the sacred duties, but one of the most powerful, most symbolic, most important duties, the burning of the incense as the people prayed. This is a sacred duty that many people hoped for and waited for. And it was a duty that was so special, so sacred, that once your name had been drawn as a priest, it could never be drawn again. When you worked in the temple, when you burned the incense on the altar, you could never have that duty again, ever. This was a literally a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And he had been patiently waiting all these years, now an old man, waiting and hoping just once in his lifetime to do something so very important as come before the Father and lift prayer and burn the incense. But he didn't hold his breath because he knew how many people were waiting. He knew how many names there were in the hat. And year after year, he wasn't lucky enough to be drawn. But this year it was different. His name had been called, and he would perform the burning of the incense. He was absolutely elated. What a great privilege and honor. He was about to undertake literally the most important moment of his entire life. In more ways than one, as he would come to find out. So Zechariah, doing his priestly duties, entered the temple... And as he goes before the Lord to burn the incense, the other priests leave. This is a private, special, sacred moment. All the other priests leave. The people are outside praying. And as they are praying, Zechariah is praying as well. Praying for the people. Praying, Father, rescue us. Save us. Save us from ourselves and our sin. Save us from Rome. And many scholars disagree about this next point. But I think, personal opinion, I think he also prayed, God, if it's your will, please bless me and my wife. We just want a child. Some scholars say, no, he would never pray that in the temple. But with the answer to prayer that comes, with the way that Gabriel says what he says, I think he prayed it. I don't think it's selfish. I think he brought his prayer before God because he knows God cares and hears our prayers. And in that moment, I think he lifted it up. Please, Father, if it's your will, just give us a child. All alone in that holy place, as he prays in earnest, for the salvation of the people, for the deliverance of the people, for a son, something happens, something powerful. All alone in that sacred place, an angel appears. 
Now, I want you to think about that moment. That poor old man must have had quite a fright when he turned around. There's Gabriel. He says, your prayers have been answered, Zechariah. Don't be afraid. God has heard what you've had to say, and he will answer your prayers. And this is a great statement because it's true on all accounts. He will save his people. He will deliver them from Rome. And he will give Zechariah a son. God says, your prayers have been answered through this messenger that arrives. And Gabriel tells Zechariah, you're going to have a child. I know. It's strange, isn't it? You kind of think, well, that's not very possible. But God is gracious and that's literally what Gabriel tells him to name his son John names have wonderful meanings in the Bible it's so very cool to look at the history of names and to see what the names mean because John literally means Yahweh is gracious Yahweh is gracious I love that and it's not just because it's my name I love that name Yahweh is Gracious. Gabriel says, that's what you're going to name your son. Yahweh is gracious. He's not just gracious to you, but he is about to be gracious to his people and give them a gift that they could have never hoped for, that they could have never imagined, that they could have never prepared for adequately enough. He is about to bless you in an unbelievable way. And here's the great part, Zechariah. Your son... John, Yahweh is gracious. He is going to prepare the way for the Messiah. He's going to point others to the Messiah. He is going to preach. He is going to declare the greatness of the one who comes after him. And your son, he's going to be so special that even Jesus, the Messiah himself, will declare him to be the greatest man of all time. I love what's said in Luke 7:28, Jesus' own words. He says, "Among those born of women there is no one greater than John." And while Zechariah is certainly shocked at the news, he's exceedingly grateful. And too much has been made of Zechariah's shock over the years. People saying it's a moment of faithlessness when he says, you know, how could this be? It's not faithlessness. Zechariah had faith. But he's literally like, I'm an old man. <laughs> that's that's kind of strange, don't you think? For me to have a kid? I don't think it was faithlessness. I think it was surprise. I think it was gratitude expressed in shock. He didn't doubt God's power for one second to do what he said he would do. I think he's just genuinely surprised that so many good and wonderful things would happen to him in one day. See, Zechariah knew the history of his people. He knew the goodness of God. But it's one thing to know the goodness of God. It's a whole other thing to experience it and to wonder why God would be so mindful of us. God had chosen him 
for this task, for this day. The choosing of the lot with his name, it was by no accident. And the miraculous birth that was about to take place, it was no accident. And he probably thought, why me? I'm not anybody special. And so he asked for a sign, how will I know? And I know it's not exactly the most brilliant question to ask about, how will I know when my wife's pregnant? (laughs) Duh. But remember, the angel just appeared to him. He's still probably in a little shock. Before we're too hard on Zechariah, let's remember that we'd probably all ask some pretty dumb questions if Gabriel showed up to talk to us. Probably be like, how do I know? It's an awesome day for Zechariah. He's been chosen to offer the incense. He gets a visit from an angel, Gabriel, no less. He's been told that God has answered his prayers now that he's going to be a father. And that's a whole lot of blessing all at once. No wonder he asked such a dumb question. You ever felt so joyful that you feel giddy? You feel so deliriously blessed that you couldn't word properly? I can't word properly some days. It just doesn't come out the way that it's supposed to. The words don't flow. Yeah, he's having that kind of moment. But Gabriel, nevertheless, gives him a pretty hard sign to deny. He closes Zechariah's mouth. Like, up, up, up. This is what you're doing. This is what I want you to do. And that's exactly what happens. He closes his mouth, and he's not able to speak at all until John is born. I've heard a lot of preachers joke about that, like, oh, Elizabeth was really happy with that blessing. And you know that during those months of silence, maybe Zechariah would be depressed about not being able to speak. But I want you to see the first words recorded to come out of his mouth when John is born. Scroll down or flip over to Luke chapter 1, verse 67 through 79. I want you to see the first words that come out of his mouth. Some people are like, oh man, I can't imagine not being able to talk. What a, you know, what a hard thing to undergo. Zechariah, beautiful words flow out of his mouth when it opens. I love these words. This is what it says. His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness 
and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Beautiful words. Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit and his mouth is opened and out comes praise. I love the very first line. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Not, man, praise God, I can talk again. No. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. He gives glory to God. He doesn't bemoan the past few months of silence and never being able to win an argument with his wife. He doesn't complain or whine. He starts giving God glory and honor and praise. Why? Because he's grateful. You want to know what gratitude looks like? It's action. It's movement. It's words and deeds and thoughts and attitudes. And Zechariah nails it. coming here once a week or once a month or once a year like you're doing God some giant favor by showing up to listen to me is not gratitude. It's not thankfulness. God does not care if you listen to me. You and I need to totally rethink everything we know about gratitude and take a page from Zechariah's book. If we really want to show God our gratitude and thanks, we need action and attitude. So how does that work out practically for us as Christians? Well, it means showing up. When you really care about someone, you want to spend time with them. When you are grateful to your employer for giving you a new opportunity, a new job, new promotion. You show up to work on time, don't you? You don't show up an hour late like, eh, that's not gratitude. In fact, you may not even just show up on time. You probably show up, on, show up early. You invest time in what matters to you and what you're grateful for. If you really want to tell God thank you, then you need to show up. And I'm not just talking about showing up at church. That's important. But I mean showing up in our other activities. Reading the Bible. Being present and there for your family. We need to show up. We need to be present. We need to be active. And this works out in our practice, practically as Christians, certainly in church. Don't think for one second when I tell you that God isn't, isn't uh, impressed by you showing up to listen to me, that he doesn't care if you're in church or not. He certainly and absolutely does. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 through 25 says this, And let us consider how to stir, one, stir up one another uh, to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So many people in our culture right now think, oh, I don't need church. I just need my Bible and I can go sit out under a tree somewhere. No, God tells you, show up. Be a part of a body. Be a part of the body of believers. Do you know why? Because you need that accountability. You need that teaching. 
You need that learning. You need that growth. You need that family. Church is family where we learn and we grow together and we also support one another. Furthermore, it should be just enough that since God commands you to do it, that you do it. We oftentimes look for more reasons than just God says to do it. Why we need a a logical reason. Um, But honestly, God is creator. He is king. We need no more reason than he simply says, do or do not. And it shows what we value most in how we spend and invest our time. If I really want to start meddling, I could ask questions like, how many hours do we dedicate to watching silly sitcoms and meaningless movies? Don't misunderstand, I have nothing against entertainment. I enjoy video games. I have a subscription to Netflix. But if you were to tally up all your hours of entertainment, how many days, months, even years would it equal to? How much time, if you started tallying, would your Bible reading tally up to? How much time in Christian service have you spent? How much time in church have you spent? How much time loving and listening to other people in Jesus' name have you done? Would it equal a few days? Don't misunderstand. All those works, all those things, they don't make you holy. They don't make you righteous. They don't earn you salvation. Don't misunderstand what I'm trying to tell you. Doing these things, it's not going to get you in. You can't check off all the boxes on the list and be like, now God has to take me. That's not the way it works. But these things are a natural outpouring of the attitude that exists right here. Are you thankful and grateful to God? Because your works will be the evidence of your faith. Number two, it doesn't just mean showing up, it means putting up. Like our time, there's another great indicator of what we value most in life and of whom, to whom we are most grateful. It's our money. Most of, our, uh, most of us work very hard for our money. And as you... Uh, as such, you get to then spend it how you choose, except for the part, of course, that the government takes, but that's another sermon for another day. I'm going to be honest with you. The church as a whole, not just here, but the church as a whole in America, has a problem with giving. There is a giving gap in America. The church is not doing a great job nationwide at giving. And I don't say that to hurt you. I'm not trying to guilt you. I love you and care about you deeply, and that's why I have to say what I have to say. We're never going to check your tax returns. We're never going to require them to be for you to be a member. Your giving is your responsibility as a believer. It is an act of worship and an act of thanksgiving to God. But you need to hear the facts. Recent surveys in America report that a quarter of churchgoers report that they tithe that they give 10%. However, their words were checked against the actual financial records of their churches, and their statements were found to be incorrect by a very big margin. Actual money received was somewhere closer to the range of 3%. 
3%. In fact, 10% of the respondents to the survey who put down that they gave 10% of their total income were confirmed to have actually given a grand total for the whole year, get this, of $200 or less. $200 or less. Guys, that's what most of us pay for our cell phone bill each month. And I know you don't like me talking about tithing or money, but Jesus talked about money more than he talked about heaven. Do you know that? He talked about money more than he talked about heaven. Why? Because money indicates who and what we value most. Money is a tool. It's neither good nor evil. We oftentimes twist scripture to say things that it doesn't say. People say all the time that money is the root of all evil. No, it's not. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's a very specific wording. The love of money. Love of money. As a tool, money can accomplish great good or great evil. It is the influence behind the tool that does and accomplishes what it sets out to do. For example, a hammer is a tool. It can be used to build a house. It can also be used to kill a man with. It is the intention and the will behind the tool that either builds the house or murders a human being. So let me ask you, how is your money glorifying God? Let's forget things like specific percentages and the typical idea of tithing for a moment. Let's look at the bigger picture. How much of your income do you spend on yourself? Most of it, right? If we're honest. Our mortgages, our rent, our insurance, which we're now required to have. We need to pay those bills. And honestly, that's good. I don't want you to feel guilty about paying bills. That is a way as Christians that we glorify God. We pay our bills on time. But how is all of our money, all of our expenditure glorifying God? Do you open your homes to one another? When a missionary is visiting, do we give them a place to rest? Do we open our homes to have Bible study, a place to meet for our young people? If we're going to worship God with our money, let's do it with all of our resources as well, with all the things that our money buys, our cars, our homes, our TVs, everything. Let's worship God with all the stuff that we invest our money into as well. I want you to think about all the things that we do invest our money in, our clothes, our makeup, our hair products, our cable, our internet, our cell phone, our cars, our motorcycles, our boats, our RVs, our ATVs, our flat screen TVs, our movies, our dinners. Those are all good things and blessings. But if a created thing becomes something that we worship, if a created thing takes the position of glory and honor 
of preeminence and prominence in our lives above and before Creator God, then we have a worship problem. We have an idolatry problem. It's not just a thankfulness problem, it's a worship problem. May I make a suggestion? Do a budget. Figure out where all the money goes in your home and ask yourself honestly, am I giving thanks to God with my finances or am I just paying him lip service? Number three. It means shutting up. It means shutting up. Thankfulness sometimes means shutting up about ourselves. Notice Zechariah's mouth is closed. He doesn't have the opportunity to tell anybody what happened to him. He comes out of the temple. He can't talk. People are like, uh, something happened in there. We're not quite sure what, but the man went in able to talk and came out not able to talk. He's shut up, literally. And when finally he can open his mouth, what does he pour forth? Let me tell you about my experience. Let me tell you my testimony. Let me tell you my story. No. He says, praise be to God. Glory to God. Praise comes out. Beautiful prayer and prophecy about who? Himself, his son, his family? No, about God. If we want to truly be thankful to live our lives as lives of thankfulness before God, then we need to start learning to shut up about ourselves and start praising God. So many of our songs in church nowadays, in the Christian world, and I'm not talking about here, I'm talking about all of Christianity. So many of our songs from Hillsong and all these other big bands, who do they focus on? Us. On self. Guys, that is not only unfortunate, it's unacceptable. Our praise and worship should be towards God. It should be focused on God. It should be lifting His name in praise, not focused inward. We must sing to Him and about Him and how good and great He is. So many of our songs only pay God brief lip service in them. We sing about our feelings and our emotions, and it's all humbug. If we want to actually thank God, we have to actually focus on Him and stop with the inward focus on ourselves. we got to shut up about us. It's time to shut up about our feelings and start praising God's holy name. So today, if you're a Christian, the challenge is threefold. Show up, put up, and shut up. But today, maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you're curious about all of this. Why, why thankfulness? Why are you thankful at all? Let me tell you why we're thankful. Because the story about the man that we just saw, Zechariah, is a story about a man who would have a son who would precede the most important figure in all of history. John, Yahweh is gracious, comes before one we call Jesus. 
John points the way to this man, precedes this man, and when this man comes before him, he recognizes exactly who he is. This is God come into human form. This is God wrapped in flesh. He says, this one, I'm not even worthy to touch his feet, to untie his shoes. And there's a scene in scripture where Jesus goes to be baptized by this man. And it's so powerful. So I can't imagine being John in that moment. And as he baptizes God in flesh, he sees the fulfillment of everything. Of not just what was foretold to his father, Zechariah, but was, what was foretold to the prophets of old. That a Messiah was coming. He got to see the Messiah with his own eyes. Messiah. Savior. Savior from what? From our sin. You and I, if we are honest, we recognize we're not perfect people. Far from it. We are sinners. We have committed great sins in our lives. We've hurt other people. We've hurt ourselves. But here is the good news. Here is the gospel in a nutshell. God loved the world, you and me and all of us, enough that he was willing to come into the world he created to die for you and for me. That's good news. Because in that death, he makes payment for your sin. He makes payment for my sin, he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. He makes us clean. He washes us, scripture says, white as snow. And when we are judged before Almighty God one day, the promise is this, that the Father sitting in judgment will look upon us and will not see us, but will see Jesus. will see his righteousness covering us and making us clean, and we will be saved. That's good news, and news that deserves our thanks. And this morning, if you need to receive that good news, we're going to have a time of invitation. This is a time for you to respond, to repent, and believe that Jesus is the Christ. And if you are ready to do that this morning, don't wait any longer. Come forward as we stand and as we sing. Thanks for joining us for the message today. If you would like more information about this and other teachings, or you'd just like to know more about Jesus, visit our website at wccjb.org or come visit us at 1405 Persimmon Ridge Road in Jonesboro, Tennessee. Check our website and Facebook page for service times. We hope you join us again and that we'll see you soon.